0: Hey, welcome to the Capital City Christian Podcast and to our series study through the book of 1 John, a verse-by-verse study through this great letter written by the Apostle John. So grab a Bible, grab a notepad, and let's dive in together. Well, hey everyone, welcome to our Tuesday study through the book of 1 John. Hope you're doing great uh, today. Make sure that you grab a Bible, grab a notepad as we're gonna spend the next 20 to 30 minutes together walking through a few verses of 1 John. Um, In my fancy glass today, if you're wondering, is uh, some Pepsi vanilla. Vanilla Pepsi is filled in my fancy glass today. Um, don't know what you have in your fancy glass, but mine's Pepsi Vanilla, I'm ready to rock and roll, let's, uh, let's dive in together. Now before we get uh, to First John, we're in chapter 3, if you want to turn there, um, I'm going to, of course, do our Tuesday Dad Joke of the Week. Uh, Tuesday Dad Joke of the Week, here it is for today. Did you know the first French fries were not actually cooked in France, they were cooked in Greece. Yes, here's to french fries and Tuesday's dad joke of the week. All right, we're glad you're here today. We're going to continue in 1 John chapter 3. We're picking up in verse 4, but before we dive into verse 4, I do have to make a few comments about the following verses that we're going to hit over the next couple of weeks. This passage, specifically 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 to 10, has been um, the center of controversy uh, between many Christians for many, many years. And the controversy is between um, what we call uh, Christian perfectionism, or as some people call it, uh, entire sanctification. It's this philosophy and idea that as believers... During our life, we can reach a state where we never sin, where we are are, are perfect. Um, this uh, idea uh, comes from Romans chapter six. If you read Romans chapter six, there is the sense that man, the Holy Spirit gives you power. You can, uh, you can reach entire sanctification. Um, and so the, the controversy between the next few verses is between a group of people who, who may hold to the philosophy of entire sanctification and a group of people who say, listen, as Christians, we're, we're gonna do our best, but we're gonna continue to sin. The continuing sinfulness of the Christian. Which, it's interesting because Romans 6 talks about this power that we have to overcome sin. But if you read Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul, it's the famous verse where Paul is like, listen, I know what I need to do, but I don't do it. And there's a sinful nature inside of me. And so there's this kind of tension between these two groups or these two ideologies. And that tension is on display um, in these few verses that we're about to read through. Now, I will say this, we must not allow our theological bias to influence a careful exegesis of these verses. We must not allow other texts to influence this text until our study of this text is complete and we have understood what John is trying to say within the context of, of 1 John chapter 3, but also within the context of the entire book. We can't pick verses out and make them say something that they do not say. What we're going to read over the next couple of weeks as we wade through these very important verses is I think we're going to learn that this text clearly presents that the goal of all believers, the goal that we should long for is a total deliverance from sin. After all, that is is what the hope of the new heavens and the new earth is, a world and a life without brokenness and without sin in it. The same ideal, this this desire to be totally delivered from sin, is presented in Romans chapter 6, and through the power of Christ, we have the potential to overcome sin. Absolutely. This passage, however, has to fit into the larger context of the entire book of 1 John. and We're going to talk about it a little bit, but it it would be really poor of us to interpret this passage without regard for 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 through chapter 2 verse 2 which we'll read those verses in a minute in recap to interpret this passage to interpret just passages outside of John's overall purpose to to teach believers that, listen, you can have assurance in your salvation, that even though there are these false teachers, these Gnostic teachers who are saying, no, wait a minute, you can't be sure because you haven't received some kind of special revelation. No, John is writing to believers saying you can have assurance in your salvation. So we have to interpret these verses in light of John's complete uh, purpose as he is writing this letter. This passage that we're about to read also has to be related to the false teachers that we've been learning about. And, and these false teachers, obviously, were claiming certain things about sinlessness or sin's insignificance, and we have to remember that, that we're interpreting these verses in light of the full context of, of 1 John. Now, last thing I'll say is this. The entire theological discussion, this entire theological discussion is often based on on a misunderstanding of the difference between our position in Christ and our striving to fulfill that position experientially every day in our life. This discussion is often placed uh, within a misunderstanding of the promise that one day victory will really be ours and our current state where we are still working hard and striving for, victory we know that that we are free from sins penalty because of what Jesus has done we have been justified through faith yet we all still struggle with the power of sin and we cannot wait till the day where we're going to be free of its presence right the glorification of of our bodies and so so this period that we're living in is this period where we, of, of sanctification, where we're trying to be made into the likeness of Jesus. And we're supposed to grow in that every day. And the tension is, will we ever grow in our current life? Will we grow to the point where we don't ever sin again? Or, or will we always struggle with sin? The, the book as a whole, 1 John, teaches a priority of admitting our sin Being honest about it, but striving toward sinlessness. And so there's two sides of a coin here that we're gonna kind of wrestle with and and, and battle with over the next couple of weeks. So that's kind of a setup of 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 to 10. Today we're gonna look at verses 4 through 7 specifically. So if you have your Bible, look at 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 4. John says this everyone who practices sin, also practices lawlessness, because sin is lawlessness. So he starts out, chapter four or chapter three, verse four, saying, "Everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness." Now this is a present tense verb usage, which um, kind of denotes a habitual lifestyle, an ongoing lifestyle action of sin. So when he says. If anybody practices sin, he's talking about somebody who is habitually sinning. It's their lifestyle uh, action of sin. Now it's an interesting thing here that John uses the word lawlessness. Um, this does not, the word lawlessness does not mean like you break the law of Moses or you break, you know, civil laws that we all live under in our societal norms. But this phrase, this word lawlessness, really deals with an attitude of rebellion. This was the same word that the Apostle Paul used to describe the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. When Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Lawlessness may, here in John's writings, may uh, deal with and may refer to a fuller definition of sin. That, that sin is not just a, in a, uh, a violation of one rule or a certain standard, but, but it is an attitude of rebellion. This lawlessness is more of an attitude of rebellion. James chapter 4 verse 17 says this, if anybody knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, It is sin for them. So if you know something you ought to do and you don't do it, then that's a sin. So we we call that the sin of omission. And then we have the sin of commission. And and you have all of this and it all kind of bottles up into a spirit of rebellion. And John says anybody who habitually sins, anybody who has that spirit of rebellion in them practices lawlessness. And then he says in verse five, you know that he appeared. So here John is speaking about Jesus and he's speaking about the incarnation of Jesus. And he's speaking about the purpose that Jesus came for. Why did Jesus, why did the incarnate God come to the earth? Why did Jesus come to the earth? Well, here is a simple, simple purpose statement. Verse five, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. In order to take away sins. Jesus first came as savior. He came to save us from our brokenness, from our sin. Jesus first came as Savior, and he will come again as the consummator of our faith at his second coming. But this verse, if you want to know a foundational reason why Jesus came to this earth, this verse is so simple. Jesus was sent by God to take away sins and to destroy the work of the devil. I love <coughs> excuse me, what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. He says this, But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, through the good news. This was the purpose of Jesus coming. So John says, everybody who practices sin practices lawlessness. But Jesus appeared so that he would take sin away. That he would remove sin. Verse five. You know that he appeared to take sins away. And then here is an important phrase. Do not overlook this phrase. It is a powerful, powerful, um, foundational, foundational truth about Christianity. At the end of verse five, Paul says, or John says, "In him there is no sin." There's another verse in Scripture that attests to the sinlessness of the person of Jesus. Jesus's sinlessness, listen to this, listen. Jesus's sinlessness is the basis for his vicarious substitutionary atonement on our behalf. If Jesus were not the perfect lamb of God, then he would not have been a worthy sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. The fact that Jesus was sinless is a foundational pillar to the entire doctrine and teaching of Christianity. Other New Testament verses echo this truth. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of of God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, for we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. The sinlessness of Jesus is a huge pillar to the Christian worldview, and there are those today who want to attack that, because if you can undermine this, you can bring down the whole system. And many people try to do that intentionally. They try to do that. And some people do it out of, out of ignorance. I don't know if you caught this a couple weeks ago, but um, Don Lemon, a CNN commentator a couple weeks ago, just flippantly made the statement where he said on air, he said, well, even Jesus wasn't perfect. That is a huge, huge claim. And that's a huge, huge attack on the foundational doctrine of Christianity. Jesus According to John here, was without sin. According to Paul, lived without sin. And while Jesus was on the earth, Jesus himself said that he was sinless. Can you imagine, just think about it for a moment. Can you imagine saying this about yourself? I mean, imagine walking into your work tomorrow and say, I am a sinless person. I've never made a mistake. I've never sinned. I've never done anything wrong that is outside the boundaries of God's standard. Imagine saying that. I mean, I mean, I, I, I have done everything I'm supposed to do. I have not done anything that I wasn't supposed to do. I've never uttered a bad word. I've never had an impure motive. I've, ever, I've never had an unclean thought. Imagine walking into your work or walking into your home today and saying that. right? Some of us couldn't even say that in the last 15 minutes we were sinless. but Jesus said that he was sinless. John chapter eight, verse 46, incredible, incredible story. Jesus says these words. He's speaking to a group of of people. There's all kinds of people, friends, family, um, religious leaders um, who were kind of his enemies in those days. Jesus in front of this crowd says this to them. Can any of you, okay, Jesus opens up this question to everybody, to everybody in the world, his family, his friends, the people who knew him best, the people who hated him most, Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? He asks that question, and then he steps back, and he waits. And if you read the rest of John chapter 8, no one came forward. No one could come up with a sliver of an idea of something that would prove Jesus guilty of sin. I will tell you this, I would never ever say this. I would never, ever ask anybody this question because if I did, hundreds of people would line up to show me how wrong I was about myself. None of us would do this, right? None of us would say these words. None of us would ask this question the way that Jesus asked it. You know, that old adage, um, nobody's perfect. Well, Jesus here would say, yeah, except for me, except for me. And if Jesus said this and it was not true like If Jesus said these words and it was not true, then Jesus is an arrogant, self-righteous individual. That's who Jesus is if he's not telling the truth here. And it's interesting because people don't say that they are not sinners. Muhammad, the, the prophet, said, I am a sinner. In the Quran, um, Muhammad said this, I am a mere man just like you, a mere mortal. If you look at other religions, Gandhi, he said, I'm a sinner. Buddha said, I'm a sinner. Krishna said, I'm a sinner. Even Billy Graham <laughs> said, I'm a sinner. If you read any of the works of the great mother Teresa, she said, I am a sinner. Jesus said, I'm not. I am not a sinner and I haven't sinned. And the rest of the New Testament backs that up. And the truth Of Jesus' sinlessness, again, is a pillar upon which the substitutionary atonement of Christ is built. Jesus had to be the perfect Lamb of God in order to be worthy to take away the sin of the world. And John reminds us of that. So John is saying, hey, if you practice sin, you practice lawlessness. But Jesus came in order to take away sin. And he could take away sin because he had no sin. And so his sacrifice on the cross was worthy and sufficient to take away sin in our life. And then he says this, John says this in verse 6. No one who abides in him sins. Okay, just like verse 4. Everybody who practices sin is practicing lawlessness. He says it in another way here in verse 6. No one who abides in Jesus sins. And this, this is true, and it should be our goal that those of us who follow Jesus, that we are doing everything we can and daily growing in our ability to overcome sin. Now, here is the struggle with a verse like this. We cannot take this verse out of its context and make it a standalone verse and create some theology around this verse. For example, we can't say, um, wait a minute. You sinned yesterday, you told a lie, so that means you are not abiding in Christ, that means you're not a Christian, you're out. We can't use this verse as a proof text for that. Why? Because we have to see this within the larger context of the book of 1 John. And if we go back again to 1 John chapter 1, you may remember these words. 1 John chapter 1 verse 8, John says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Like, if we say we are sinless, we're deceiving ourselves. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, because Jesus was sinless, because he was the perfect Lamb of God, he is able to take your sin away and forgive you of your sin when you confess. If we say, verse 10, we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. And then he says this in chapter 2, verse 1, my little children. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, right? As Christians, that's our goal, to not sin, to not break the law of God, to not live out of bounds, out of the boundaries of the law of God. That, that, is, that is true, and this is what he is saying in chapter 3. No one who abides in him continues to sin, who continues to live in that life. We we have a new attitude. We don't have a spirit of rebellion, but we have a spirit of submission to Jesus and to his teachings, and we want to follow Jesus and obey. But we have to see this verse within context of the whole book because John also says this in chapter 2, verse 1. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. So we can't take 1 John chapter 3, verse 6, and say, if you mess up, if you sin once, you're out and you're not an authentic Christian. We can't take that verse out of context. We have to see it within the whole context of the letter of 1 John. So in verse 6, John says, nobody who abides in him sins... And then he says, no one who sins has seen him or knows him. This verb is again the present active, which means a continual flagrant attitude of rebellion. If somebody has a continual flagrant attitude of sinning and rebellion, it reveals that they do not truly understand Jesus and the gospel of Jesus those claiming to be christians who habitually sin they thwart the mission of jesus they thwart the goal of christ likeness and they reveal their their own origin they reveal where they're really coming from they are not children of god but john would say they are children of the devil okay so 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 yes if we if we fall we fall into temptation and we sin john says we have an advocate We have an advocate with the Father who forgives us of our sins. But also, John says, if we are just living a continual habitual lifestyle of sin, then that reveals that we do not know truly who Jesus is. And both of those truths can be true at the same time. And then John says this, the last verse we'll look at, verse 7. He says, little children, as he's speaking to believers... He says, make sure that no one deceives you. Or or some versions say, make sure nobody is leading you astray. Who was trying to deceive these people? Remember, we've been talking about these false teachers that the the church in this day was wrestling with. In chapter 2, verse 26, uh, John says, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. There's obviously a group of people who are trying to lead the believers away. He says, make sure that nobody deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Now this verse, verse seven, cannot be isolated from the general context and be used to advocate or to condemn a doctrinal position of what we would call works righteousness. So what John is not saying here, he is not saying um, that if you practice righteousness, then that's what makes you right before God. Okay, The, the New Testament, again, if we look at the context of the New Testament, the New Testament is clear that human beings cannot approach a holy God by their own personal merit. Humans are not saved by self-effort. However, humans must respond to God's offer of salvation in the finished work of Christ. Our effort does not bring us to God, but our effort shows that when we have met Jesus and we have accepted the gospel, that we understand that beautiful, beautiful gift. And so they clearly reveal our spiritual condition and maturity after salvation. Our our righteousness or, or our response to salvation, our effort to overcome sin through the power of the Holy Spirit reveals our spiritual condition and reveals our maturity after we have received salvation. We are not saved by our good works or our righteous acts, but we are saved for good works and for righteous acts. You see, the goal of God's free gift given through Jesus is Christ-like followers. And the ultimate will of God is for every believer. It's not just that we get heaven when we die, but it's that we would become like Christ right now as we are living i love what the apostle paul said in romans chapter 8 verse 28 this is a verse that is really really well known oftentimes taken out of context but paul in romans chapter 8 verse 28 says this and we know that in all things god works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose god works for the good in all things okay now my question is well what is the good? What is the greatest good in our life? Because when I read that verse, I I have all of these goods in my own heart that like this would be good for me and this would be good for me. And if God doesn't do that, then is this verse wrong? But, But we have to ask ourselves, what is the greatest good? What is God's ultimate goal in the lives of believers? Well, look at the very next line. God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew... He also, listen to this, predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Which means that the greatest good in our life is to be conformed into the image of Jesus. What is best for us is for us to be more Christ-like every day. And Paul in this verse says, listen, There are certain things that happen in your life, and you may not understand them, but God is working all things for the good of those who love him. And our greatest good, the greatest good in our life, is for us to be made more like Christ. It's the goal. It's what we call sanctification as we are growing in Christ's likeness Our goal is to be like Jesus because of what Jesus has done for us. Now, we're gonna stop right there and we're gonna pick up next week in verse eight and finish out this this section of scripture where John will contrast children of God and children of the devil. But I want you just to think and chew on these words. Those who abide in Jesus, they will display that in their life. Are you being conformed more and more into the image of Jesus? Are you more like Jesus today than you were yesterday? And if not, what are you going to do today to be more like Jesus? Hey, listen, thanks for joining us in whatever way you're watching or listening today. And uh, we hope you join us next week as we pick up in First John chapter 3. We're going to begin next week in verse 8. Have an awesome, awesome week, everybody. And we will see you back here next week as we continue our study through First John. hope this content serves as a catalyst towards spiritual growth in your own life. If you want to support this podcast, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate, review, and share it. This helps create more exposure and allows us to include as many people as possible into this community. Thanks for joining us and for being a part of the Capital City Christian Podcast.